The following is provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu. So now it's my pleasure to introduce the reporter for World Magazine who interviewed the Archbishop and first suggested him as a possible Neil Conference speaker. She's here to help introduce the conference and um, also her World article on the Archbishop called Men of the Hard Cloth is available for you to take as you leave today um, in the lobby. Mindy Bells has written for World since 1986, um, becoming the magazine's international editor in 1994 and its editor in 2004. She's covered war in Africa, the Balkans, and the Middle East. Her reporting has been published overseas as well as in World and I, First Things, the Charlotte Observer front page magazine, and the Washington Times. She's appeared on Fox News and ABC News. She's a former Capitol Hill staffer and attended George Washington University. Mrs. Bells is the daughter-in-law of early Covenant College board member Max V. Bells, is married to Covenant alum Nat Bells, and is privileged to have two children, Emily and Drew, attending Covenant, and two more, Naomi and Sarah, at home in Asheville, North Carolina. Please help me welcome Mindy Bells. Can you hear me, everyone? Wow, you guys are beautiful. This is just, do you do this every day? It's just great, it's amazing. I wouldn't need coffee. I do greet you administrators, faculty, uh, friends, family, and especially students. It's really a privilege to be here. It's just an honor for me, both in terms of the subject and in terms of you, um, the student body here. Uh, it's my honor to be here. I want to also thank the student committee. I don't know if all of you are aware of how hard they've worked and how long they've planned to make this event possible. And even at a distance, I've just seen so much go into this. Um, you have a great week ahead of you. I feel confident saying that. And so I want to just bring a few remarks this morning, hopefully, that will open up uh, for you a little bit the story of Archbishop Henry Luke Arambi. At World Magazine, I have a colleague, and she's, she grew up in Africa. And she often complains that whenever Americans tell a story about Africa, whether it's a book or a movie or documentary, they always feel they have to begin with a red dusty road. And so there actually is a red dusty road that leads to Archbishop Arambi's house on Namarimbi Hill above Kampala. So let's don't begin there. Um, instead, let's begin in downtown Kampala, the capital of Uganda, in All Saints Cathedral. It's a century-old Anglican church, and it's nestled among trees near Parliament in the State House where the President lives. It's Thursday evening, twilight, and the All Saints Sanctuary begins to fill. There are government workers and teachers and accountants and housemaids and uh, widows all coming. 
One young man tells me that he rides his bicycle home every night after the Thursday, every Thursday after the service uh, to the outskirts of Kampala. And another woman I met named Julianne says that her house is six miles away and she walks there in the dark every Thursday evening. This is Henry Orambi's church. And whenever he is home in Kampala, he not only leads the Sunday services, but he also teaches this Thursday evening Bible study. And there were probably 250 people there. He begins by saying, God is good. And the people respond. On this evening, he does not give your typical three-point homily. He gives a 10-point lesson. Um, on leadership in the church, leadership based on patterns in Jesus' life. His Bible is heavily marked with orange highlighter, but he uses no notes as he teaches from Luke chapter 10. I'm sorry, he was teaching from Mark. His middle name is Luke. Um, he actually, he was teaching from Mark chapter 10. There's the, the interruption that's become universal as cell phones ring here and there, and at one point the lights go out because this is Africa, you remember. But everywhere in the pew I see people taking notes and bent over their Bibles, and when the service is over, no one leaves right away. They talk with each other, and they wait to shake Arambi's hand. I mean, they wait like an hour, um, because this isn't just a formality. He's asking people about their husbands. He's asking wives about their children. Um, he's asking about relatives in the village. He's asking about jobs. He's talking about the power outages. And when someone asks him a very difficult question, he says, come by my office this week, let's talk. Maybe this isn't remarkable. It's what we want in a parish pastor. It's what we want in our own pastors. But Henry Arambi could be an internationally syndicated pastor. He should have a radio talk show. He should have a tape ministry. He should have his own website. And instead, he is content to be perhaps at the center of the greatest church controversy that's facing global Christendom right now. He's a man whose comments regularly get him into trouble with American church leaders, with AIDS activists, with guerrilla warlords, and even with Islamists, which is a growing threat in his own country. So, now come with me about a week later to Washington, D.C. There, the presiding bishop of the U.S. Episcopal Church, which is the American arm of the worldwide Anglican Communion. And she is a peer of Henry Arambi, and she is preaching at her own investiture at National Cathedral. Catherine Jeffords Shorey begins this way. Some people who engage this journey we call Christianity discover that home is found on the road, whether literally the restless travel that occupies some of us or the hottest that is the way of following the one we call Christ. Hottest means the way, and it's also found in, it's Greek, I had to look it up. It's also found in the Gospel of Mark, like Arambi's text. But it's actually the beginning and the end of her references to Scripture. And in contrast to Arambi, Bishop Shorey uses notes, but no Bible. This is a high crowd, and it's a hushed moment. 
and her installation as chief clergywoman over the nation's third largest denomination um, is here in the nation's cathedral where presidents pray before they go to be inaugurated and where the nation grieves when they die. So here, she quotes St. Augustine and Robert Frost. She discusses the meaning of shalom, and she talks about the UN's Millennium Development Goals. And so afterwards, one Episcopal commentator said the sermon was remarkable not for what it said, but for what it did not say. It made no mention of the cross, of Jesus' death or resurrection. She never used the word gospel. She did not mention the Father the Son, or the Holy Spirit. And unlike her address um, at the General Convention of the Episcopal Church a few months prior to this, she did not refer to Mother Jesus, but neither did she refer to Jesus as Lord. Her sermon, said Episcopalian David Gustafson, was, quote, devoted to a description of temporal goals as to which there is no Christian distinctive. And so today, my friends, the worldwide Anglican communion is in crisis. It's a crisis that's mirrored in pockets of both Protestant and Catholic life. It's a crisis that affects countries around the world that many of you hope to serve in. And so it's a crisis that's important to us, even if we feel like it's not our crisis. Many believe that the crisis is over homosexuality and that it can be traced to the 2003 consecration of New Hampshire Bishop Gene Robinson, who, as I'm sure you've um, seen this in the press, he is an openly gay clergyman who lives with his male partner. But really, that's simply the easiest fly in the ointment to see. While the Robinson consecration was a watershed issue for people like Henry Arambi, at its heart, the conflict is about the authority of scripture, and it goes much deeper and much further back. Henry Arambi writes in this month's issue of First Things an essay entitled, What is Anglicanism? And I really encourage you this week to um, take a look at that. He says, quote, The Bible cannot appear to us a cadaver merely to be dissected, analyzed, and critiqued, as has been the practice of much modern higher biblical criticism. Certainly we engage in biblical scholarship, and criticism, but what is important to us is the power of the Word of God precisely as the Word of God, written to bring transformation in our lives, our communities, and our culture. So often, these most fundamental debates come robed in layers of intrigue and complexity. And so here, in the time that we have left, I want to give you a summary of what is just layers of intrigue and complexity so that I hope you'll have um, something to carry with you into the week and something that we can, some things that we can pray about during the time that we have left. After um, Bishop Robinson, Jean Robinson of New Hampshire was consecrated, the provinces of Uganda um, and others around the world, all from what we call the global south, they declared themselves to be in impaired communion with the Episcopal Church in America. Sounds like a disease. Um, 
individual Episcopal churches, hundreds of them here in this country out of a total of about 7,000. They also declared themselves in impaired communion with their own denomination. And then the Worldwide Anglican Communion called upon the U.S. Episcopal Church to stop ordaining gay clergy and blessing same-sex unions as a way back to respecting the authority of Scripture. Lengthy talks, lengthy meetings, lots of back and forth, and no change. And the oldest church in America is now beginning to fragment. Last December, two of the largest and certainly the most historic churches in the country, the Falls Church and Truro Church, both in Virginia, both with George Washington and other founding fathers at one time on their vestries, um, both, um, and this is important, with properties valued at a combined total of $27 million, voted to leave the denomination. They have since placed themselves under the care of the Archbishop of Nigeria, the Anglican province of Nigeria. And so altogether, the Archbishops of Nigeria, Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda, Southeast Asia, Latin America, have taken under their wing about 250 U.S. congregations. At the moment, the entire diocese of San Joaquin Valley, California, of Fort Worth, Texas, and of Pittsburgh are poised to bolt also. Arambi has taken 33 separate U.S. congregations under his care. Actually, that number may have changed since I even looked into it a week or so ago, but I believe that's the latest number. On September 2nd, he appointed a rector from Virginia named John Guernsey to oversee them on his behalf. But obviously now when he comes to the United States, he has churches to care for as well as students to speak to. If you read the U.S. press and the Episcopal blogs, you'll learn that Arambi and his African colleagues want to impose on the West sexual mores that may work in Africa but are outdated here. And to this, Arambi likes to point out that he grew up in a polygamist family. He did. And that his church and he personally work extensively with illicitly sexually active AIDS victims. Sexual misconduct, he told me, is, quote, not some boxed-up thing for the Western world. It's a human failure, a failure to understand God's primary design and his calling on us. He says that we do our fellow human beings no favor to grant them unbridled sexual freedom. And I say that to, the, to you, college students, who have friends, that you do no favor to grant them that. Do you think the prostitutes are so happy because they are there where they are, he said, or the AIDS victims? This is an injustice to humanity. The problem in America and the Western world is they don't want to call it sin. They want to give it another name, and we don't want this. So this week, as Archbishop Arambi begins to address you Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, on Thursday, the U.S. House of Bishops will begin a national meeting in New Orleans. And I won't go into the ironies there, but J.I. Packer has actually said a few funny things about that. At the top of its agenda will be whether or not to meet a September 30 deadline that has been placed on the Episcopal Church by the Worldwide Anglican Communion. 
And the deadline is that by that date, they should swear off further consecrations of actively gay bishops and take a stand against same-sex blessings. Will the American Episcopal Church walk away from its worldwide brethren, or will the brethren slowly walk away from it, as we see happening? Um, that's really something that you'll have to hear from Archbishop Arambi. But this, and what we're seeing here, is really the upside-down turning of history. And it is unfolding this week before your eyes. The poor churches of the global south speaking truth to power. And the African lands decimated by slavery. Their transplanted forebears in America locked out of Anglican worship. Locked out of white man's worship for generations by us. Now providing sanctuary and leadership to the churches in the United States. When Americans look at Africa, we tend to find ourselves looking through white man's eyes, through the eyes of Bono or Madonna, Bill or Melinda Gates, Henry Cravendam, George Clooney, George Bush, these are fleeting and transitory glimpses, as is mine to you this morning. And so I challenge you this week, see Africa through an African man's eyes. And better yet, my fellow Anglo-Saxons and all of you Scots, you have a rich history. And so when you look to Africa, don't stop at the quaint red dusty road. Listen to what an African church leader, godly man, has to say about our Western church, our American culture, and our white men's hearts. Thank you. The proceeding was provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia and available at itunes.covenant.edu.